Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Stephen Broyles. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm very good. I've been looking forward to this conversation since the last time we spoke, especially because it was getting so interesting. And I said, wait, wait, we got to record this. And uh, the way I came to you was that regular listeners and people have done the workshop, the Sustainability Leadership Workshop, know Evelyn, uh, Evelyn Wallace. And she is getting her master's degree in social work at Howard University. And I keep, I'm, I have a background in, in many things, including leadership. And I keep talking about leadership. And every time I do, not every time, but a lot of times she says, oh yeah, yeah, we do that in social work. And in social work, it's called, and another name for something similar. So building community and listening to people. And, and then it hit us, let's talk to one of your professors. And so you are a professor of, uh, you're a lot of things. And among them, you're one of her professors at Howard University online. And you do a lot of things that overlap with what we're doing in terms of helping lead people and helping build community. And when we spoke before, there was one, there was a lot of overlap, but I could see why Evelyn kept saying that. And the other was especially your background and what you do, the interplay between individual action and systemic change was fascinating to me and very relevant to sustainability. And so I, I had to get the conversation going. And I think the best place to start might be where we started before of maybe you could introduce a bit about what you do, how you describe what you do, and then how you came to it, if that's okay with you. That's absolutely perfect. And I'll, I'll kind of kick it off there. Currently, I'm one of the professors in the Community Administration and Policy Practice Sequence at the Howard University School of Social Work. And Evelyn Wallace is one of our online students in the master's program doing a phenomenal job. And she's always been very intrigued in terms of how we do systemic work, uh, particularly in social work. And what led me to it was being born and raised in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit in the 70s and 80s. And one of the things that I noticed early on was that there was a lot of issues that we saw in terms of poverty, health, and it wasn't that people weren't working hard. It wasn't that people weren't trying. It was just that it appeared that people had a deck stacked against them. Matter of fact, when I was getting ready to go off to college, when I was considering college, my sophomore year, my mother sat me down and she basically said, you know, sophomore year of high school, you're still going to college. And I knew I was. I've, I've always wanted to be, you know, at that point in time, I wanted to be either a physician or a scientist. I knew that much. And she made it clear that, oh, I was still going, but <laughs> money wasn't there to do it. And she said, then you're going to have to really work on getting a scholarship. And I said, well, consider it done. So that's what I did. And I was able to get both athletic and academic scholarships. And at that point in time, there was no name, image, and likeness kind of deals around. And it was made very clear to me if I was going to be an athlete, then that was going to be my full-time job in college. Well, I'm the oldest child of my family. And there's five of us, you know, five brothers and sisters. And well, actually, there's, there's seven of us total. But I knew that not working was not an option. So I ended up taking the academic scholarship which was a pre-med scholarship where I would start medical school my senior year at Michigan and went off to school to do that. 
at the end of my first year, things were going good. My grades were doing well. And I've been working year round. And that's one of the jokes. My friends always said, you're always working. I was like, well, yeah, I get I have to work. That's not a, that's not an option. And they at that point in time, my work study position had finished and my other job on campus was not going to be enough to carry me through the summer. So someone told me that the Salvation Army was hiring. Why not go take a look at them? And my immediate reaction was no, <laughs> because the only context I had with the Salvation Army was during the winter, during the Christmas, right now, the holiday season we're right now, you would see Santa on the corner with a red bucket for the Salvation Army. Now, I grew up in Michigan. If you've ever been through a Michigan winter, there is nothing about standing on a corner with a bucket <laughs> that even mildly appealed to me. So I was pretty much resolute in terms of, nope, uh-uh, forget it, no way. But, you know, they told me, well, they do other things, food pantries, clothes, you know, clothing closets, and things I really I never knew much about the Salvation Army. So I said, all right, well, beggars can't be choosers. Let me go take a look at them. So printed my resume, and you can tell what time, what, what era we're in right now, got on my bike, and I rode to the Salvation Army just to see if I could drop off my resume to get an interview at a later date. So I go there to the lobby. And at this point in time, there's not really a lot of people, many people there. And I just ask if I could leave my resume and the person at the front desk said, well, have a seat. Someone will be, you know, will come shortly to get it. I said, okay, well, fine. So I'm sitting there for a while and I'm seeing people coming in and out. And eventually I noticed a family walk into the Salvation Army. And this was a Latino family. And one of the things that people didn't don't really always think about with the state of Michigan because of the orchards we have there, there's a migrant population that will come through the state. And this particular family, you know, I was able to understand that they needed assistance. The only issue was that no one in the, in the family really spoke English. And that wouldn't have been a big deal if it wasn't for the fact that no one that Salvation Army spoke any Spanish. So as I'm sitting there watching what's going on, I just instinctively just asked, you know, asked the family and asked, the, you know, the person on staff, I said, look, my Spanish isn't is that great. You know, as a matter of fact, my Latino friends often joke that my Spanglish is kind of like the Incredible Hulk talking in Spanish. But I figured that day it was better than nothing. So everyone agreed and I do the best I can and I translate for the family to the worker. And we find out the assistance that they needed. They got it. There was additional referrals and they kind of sent them on their way. So they tell me, thank you. I sit back down. I'm still thinking at some point in time, is someone going to take the brother's resume or, or what's going to happen here? <laughs> And eventually I see a gentleman walk in the lobby. He's kind of looking around and he asked the you know person at the front desk is the person who spoke to this you know family still here. And I look, kind of see him and I, I didn't know that they wore uniforms at the Salvation Army. So I kind of raised my hand and was like, well, it was me, sir. And he looked at me and I'm thinking, oh, what did I do? Did I mess up? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? He kind of looks at me and then he says, by any chance would you have me looking for a job? And well, yes, I am. Uh -huh. And I became a case manager of the Salvation Army at the age of 19. And I did that the entire summer and fell in love with it. So much that I decided that I wanted to leave pre-med and went down the road toward social work and public health. And mainly because I really wanted to do preventative medicine. And the only places I knew they were kind of doing that work were Michigan and Stanford. And the whole idea was where I grew up, I saw many people just work until they were too sick to work anymore. A lot of them were hourly workers. Some worked in the plants and factories. But the whole idea was, if I don't work, I don't earn income. 
so I can't miss work. And by the time a person would eventually go to a doctor, it would either be a chronic condition or sometimes it was life-threatening or life-ending. In addition to that, it wasn't like there were, you know, medical centers all throughout the city or that you had a doctor always in your neighborhood. So when folks went to a doctor, you know, particularly if they didn't have transportation, it took some work to get there in terms of how long it took to get there and hopefully they'll see you on time or you use the emergency room because they don't have a regular practitioner. And I thought, well, maybe if I could do something to keep people healthy, then people could have a very better quality of life. So really public health and social work kind of fit where I was going and I moved in that direction. The part that really led me toward the macro side of things was when I was at the you know, University of Michigan, the School of Social Work and the School of Public Health. At the School of Social Work, I was placed at, the, at that point in time, was called the Michigan Family Independence Agency. It's gone through so many different iterations of names. It's a whole different name now. But I was in the Juvenile Justice Grant Unit. And one of the best mentors of my life, his name was Ralph Munzma. He would put me right in the thick of things. And what I did not realize is that the Juvenile Justice Committee for the state of Michigan, they were appointed by the governor for the most part. Or, you know, sometimes through recommendation. But if they made a recommendation, that was pretty much going to be juvenile justice policy, regulations, or laws for the state. And when I looked at that juvenile justice committee, at that point in time, I want to say it was 18 to 20 members, somewhere around that point on the committee. From what I remember, there was only one African-American male on that committee, and his name was Dr. Carl Taylor. And he did, a, and he was at Michigan State. He did a lot of the game work that we saw, you know, in southeastern Michigan in terms of understanding what was happening, working with youth, setting up programs, making recommendations. The only other member on that committee that was of color that I recall was a young person who was on the youth advisory part of it from the you know, city of Detroit. Now, I realized, you know, this committee is comprised of people all throughout the state of Michigan. Vast majority of them had never set foot in Detroit or maybe just passing through. But I know they didn't know the city because I would talk about the city and they would look at me like I had three heads. <laughs> and I it kind of dawned on me that they're making laws in terms. That's when we had things such as at what age are you going to incarcerate, you know, who's considered juvenile, who's an adult? And at what age would you try a youth as an adult? Issues such as, you know, we're looking at through, you know, sight and sound separation. There's a whole host of issues that were being decided by folks that had often, that were, first of all, didn't reflect the community as I saw it or knew it. And in addition to that, we're making laws or rules or policies for communities that they truly did not know or understand. They may have seen data or statistics, but I always say the data statistics give you the facts. You truly have to understand those communities to see the, what we kind of say, the e true Hollywood story or the story behind those facts and figures. And most of them did not have that context. Now, it's not to necessarily say that they were bad individuals. It was just they didn't know. And when you don't know, everyone does not always feel the need to go find out. But any laws or policy they made were going to impact all of Michigan. And particularly, a lot of things were targeted towards southeastern Michigan, where you had a Detroit, a Flint, 
a Pontiac, a Kalamazoo, a Benton Harbor, even though those folks didn't, you know, individuals from those communities were not often on this committee. And I saw that funding decisions in terms of how money would be used in terms of priorities for the juvenile justice system, you know, the juvenile justice grant unit wrote the proposal to the federal government, Department of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice Delinquency and Prevention, to get those funds, which were distributed through the state. And then at that point in time, where that funding would go often flowed through that grant unit. And I saw how many things happened through that unit that affected the entire state, where people who didn't even know this committee existed were being impacted by it. And I knew from that point in time, I had to be on this side of things because we had a governor, John Engler, who, much to his credit, now I'm not saying I'm necessarily the biggest fan of his politics, but to his credit, if he says something was going to happen, you know, folks are like, that would never happen. You can't do that. He made the decision to close the mental health hospitals in Michigan. And when he said they were going to happen, it happened. And I realized, again, I need to be on that side of this work because I had never seen where small groups of people could make decisions that affect hundreds of thousands of people's lives. I'm seeing a lot of interplay here on your personal side and this and the community government side. Let me get this straight. So you originally wanted to be a doctor or part of you, part of you wanted to be a doctor and that was in part to heal individuals, to heal people. Then you saw, then you loved being a caseworker, which I think switched to helping more community-based. And you saw that, and tell me if I'm getting this right or wrong, that then you saw that helping communities was different and appealed to you more than helping individuals one at a time. Yeah, it was more or less on the spectrum. We always say in social work, there's a spectrum between direct practice or clinical work moving toward meso or group work toward community work toward policy work and it's just where you are on the spectrum even early on i was a case manager for all of one summer but i realized early on that you can't solve systemic issues with individual responses and what i mean by that for example let's say we're talking of something about diet and health you can tell a person all day long you know you should you know eat fresh produce and you should you know cook your meals and do and you should if you can. But the other part, I live in Washington, D.C. now. And, you know, for example, in one of our wards, Ward 8, there's about 85,000 residents. There's one grocery store. I think at one point, now we may have an additional market that, have, that has opened up. But when you think about that, 85,000 residents served by one grocery store. There's no way that was the decision of those residents were to be that way. But that's what they have to work with and live with. And if you're telling them, well, you can, you know, you can do better if you eat better. Well, <laughs> the conditions aren't there. And now we talk about it through social determinants of health. I grew up where, you know, not too far down the road, our freeway I-94, there was an incinerator on I-94. And folks didn't understand at that point in time. Well, why do the children in this area, why are so many children and adults growing up and having asthma? Well, if there's an incinerator, you know, you know, pumping that in the air, that's what you're breathing, because you would find a layer of film on the cars, you know, the next morning, sometime, particularly after it was burning. And in the summertime, you really knew you had an incinerator there. 
well, that's going to affect people's health. And you can patch people up all day long, and you should. You should help people that are in a bad situation and need help. But at some point in time, you have to look at the system and say, why are we creating systems that keep harming people that need to get patched up? And I decided I wanted to be on that side of it. All right. So you you decide to be on that side of it. And here's this interplay that I find fascinating and extremely relevant to sustainability is that you're working on the community level, but your personal experience, you see people without the personal experience in the communities. So it's not that your personal experience is that you want it is you're not saying individual action is the answer. And yet without individual experience, meaning some individual action, you can't effectively help the communities that you want to help. So you need to have the personal experience in order to help. Am I getting this right? You've lived it. Yeah, you got it 100% correct because the personal experience informs those policy decisions. In many cases, you know, one of the first questions I'll ask my students in any of the policy courses, I'll ask them point blank. So tell me about what's going on in Browning, Montana right now or what policies are affecting Browning, Montana. And again, most of them looking at me much like that day of the Salvation Army, like, you know, or they, you know, like I had three, you know, they, <laughs> like I had three heads. And it's because there was nothing on their radar that would cause them to think about Browning, Montana, unless they're from Montana. Now, that's where the Blackfeet, you know, the Blackfeet Nation is. And I looked at that because I tell them, well, in terms of TANF policy, there's work requirements. Well, what do you do in a community where the work is seasonal? And when the parks close and the work begins to diminish and then you don't have a public transportation system and then some of the nearest jobs, because you have more people than jobs in the community when it's seasonal at times, the nearest major city is two and a half to three hours away. And if there's a winter storm, the roads are impassable, but their aid is tied to a work requirement that has been deemed by folks that never have had to live in Brown and Montana and have no idea what is going on there. Those are the kinds of things we're talking about. And I tell my students, I don't think you're not bad because you don't know. But if you're going to make policy, you realizing that you're going to make policy for people that you have never met. So at the very least, we know that in those arenas, we need a diverse groups that have a broader range of understanding. But also, it's hard to make those decisions without having the experience or contact with people that you're going to impact or affect. Yeah, this is something that Elle and I talk about all the time, is that one of the refrains in sustainability of people not acting is they say, well, what I do doesn't matter. Individual action isn't the answer. We have to change systems. And so don't look at me. But if you don't act, I'm going to put it bluntly, how I think of it is you don't know what you're talking about. The challenges of, of sustainability aren't a lack of technology or legislation. I mean, those things can help. But if we don't change our culture, I mean, the big challenges are things like what someone does when, what do you do when people around you say, oh, you, you'll fail. You can't do that. Or what do you do when you want to not pollute, but your mom is sick on the opposite coast? These are the challenges that people, by and large, they, it stops people from thinking. It's like they, they see that there's this, this challenge up ahead. They don't know how to overcome it. And so they just stop. 
Now, I'm not, I don't know the answers to each individual thing, but I do know that you have to challenge yourself to do these things. You, you have to face these challenges yourself. If you want to help others face similar challenges for themselves in their lives, and the goal for me, like people look at me and see a lot of the things that I've done, not flying since 2016 and taking five years to fill up a load of garbage and things like that. And they say, well, Josh, people can't do that. But I'm not saying people should copy me. I'm saying that people can do in their lives what I've done in my life. And it'll look for them different than it will for me, but they'll do, they'll apply the same values and so forth. It's not exactly the same as what you're saying, although it's not different. But I think this is why Evelyn and I, why she keeps saying, oh yeah, in social work, it's like this. It feels like this This interplay sounds, sounds obvious when you say it, that you have to have experience. In your case, you're describing in the community. In my case, it's doing the things. But I imagine, I also think about working with particular communities. And I suspect you also think about when you do the things oneself. Am I getting some of the interplay that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I remember, because I have a chance to see some of your work that you said was to do something meaningful. And for most folks, you, I mean, you were spot on. Doing something meaningful, most folks don't realize the avenues and opportunities that exist. I've told you before, I was a student and I was, you know, was helping staff that juvenile justice, you know, committee for the state of Michigan. I didn't even know that committee existed. And as I did that work, pretty much for any issue you're going to find under the sun, there is a commission, work group, committee, task force, something, you name it. And all of those committees are going to inform policy, law, and or regulation. What you talked about, those individual acts. A lot of the times I have students and, you know, I'm all for the students that want to go the direct practice route. But Folks often come to, you know, the field of social work because either something they've experienced directly or something they've seen and they want to change. And a lot of it tends to be those individual acts that get amplified through policy. That's what makes the difference in the world. Everything has a tipping point. And if people contribute, whether it is we're going to look at this cleanup in our park all right, now we're looking at this. Well, let's look at funding in this park and what we can do with this. Now let's look at what decisions are going to take place with this land and what's the commission or what is the committee on our local council is addressing these things. Once people realize that there are avenues for them to do that work, whether they do it systemically or whether they do it individually, it all makes a difference because trust me, one of the things I've learned in policy is that you need, you know, particularly in politics too, you need people behind you. And those individual acts that such as what you mentioned, they all add up and then you get to a snowball effect where eventually you will hit a tipping point. Now, the one thing about policy, though, is slow. The, wow. the systemic systems do not change quickly. It's often like trying to move an ocean liner and get an ocean liner turn. It's not going to turn on a dime. But once it turns it's in motion, it is hard to swing it back the other direction. And that's why you'll see decades you know, in terms of policy changes before something else happens. Does it also happen with you? I'm constantly faced with people saying individual action doesn't matter. Do you also see, do you hear that a lot too? If so, I have my theories, but why do people say it so much? Why do people say individual action doesn't matter? It's often because people don't believe 
that their individual point, the individual voice will either grab the attention of others or will make change. And usually what I'll tell folks that those times in those points and times is I'll direct them to places where their voices can get amplified. And I'll tell them, don't stop what you're doing. We're needed. What you mentioned right there in terms of your individual decisions in terms of here's how much before you've accumulated this trash or your decision not to fly. All those things add up to the point when someone I can look, a person can look at you and say, they're not making this decision. Are there ways we can make it easier for them to go about this way? Or what changes can we make on a policy side that can really nudge people in the direction of these acts? So anyone that, and the other thing I usually tell them, I say, look at history. Most major things that occurred didn't happen by this global movement that had a million people at one time is often individual acts that snowballed into a larger movement. So I'll tell a person, you may not see that. Here's the best example I can give. And I use it again, my personal life. Growing up as a child, there was an individual, his name was Mr. James. That's because, you know, anytime we had any adult, they were always Mr. and Mrs. Honor, uncle, you name it. But he used to bird watch. And to this day, and no offense to bird watchers, I still don't like bird watching. <laughs> but any day I came home from school, you know, he would, you know, what'd you do today in school? And saying nothing was not, you sat there all eight hours and they no, no, what we did. Okay. Then what did you do? Now tell me about it. And we would sit there and then we watched birds. And he made me talk about my day at school, what I learned. Now I was raised primarily by my grandmother and my mother. Immensely my mother remarried, you know, then I had a stepfather by the age of 11. But I don't believe if you, and I know this is the case. When I went, when I came back from college and I came back, two bachelors, two masters, and I sat down with him afterwards and I said, you were the reason. And he looked at me puzzled. He was like, how? This man who just said, sit down with me, tell me what you did today in school, tell me what you learned. And he one day he told me, you too smart to be stupid. Don't do anything. There's never a right time to be in the wrong place. Don't do certain things. He had no idea the impact that his life had on me. That individual act is one of my motivators that got me into college to the point where, yeah, I worked hard to get a scholarship. To him, it was just checking on a kid. For me, it was someone cared enough about me that I'm not going to let this man down. This was my mother and my grandmother and my family. But he had no idea the impact his individual act had. And that changed the course of everything that I'm doing, where I can say that, hey, I'm going to go you know, be pre-med. And now, OK, I can let pre-med go to do something else that I think has better benefit. And I know that's kind of taking us off track. But when I say that many things that people don't see occur because of individual acts, I tell people all the time, do it. You really can't see it on the front end. But when you look back, you can I, anything that we're looking at, I can pretty much trace it back to the individual acts that started it. So when people say individual action doesn't matter, I, I guess there could be a lot of reasons to say it. Part of it is they might be saying, I don't know how my individual action can matter, or it may feel it might be, I don't believe that my individual action will matter, but it feels like it's more of a social and emotional statement than a factual statement, although they may feel that it's factual at the time. And your experience says that you, can, you may have a formative experience that switches that view 
like you have had an experience where an individual action made a big difference beyond just where we saw that individual actions can matter. Maybe learning that individual action individual actions can matter and do matter is something we have to learn through experience. It's through experience and also through just what we watch the examples. It's like planting a seed. If I plant a seed tomorrow, I don't expect to be you know eating fruit by next week. It's going to take a while for it to grow. I don't expect to pick a vegetable until much later. And there's a lot of things that are happening on the ground that we can't see. And I think people struggle because they can't immediately see the results of their work and of their efforts. But over time, you begin to see it. I couldn't teach if I fundamentally didn't believe that because teaching an Ellen where, you know, she's going to be Evelyn, where she's going to be here and Evelyn's going to talk to you and then there's going to have this conversation. Teaching other students where they've gone on and done phenomenal things. And it was just, all right, let's sit up to class and talk about this. Let's go have lunch and we're going to break this thing down. Tell me what do you want to do in your career? Let me see what I can do. Those students make those individual decisions that I want to make a change. So yeah, it's just that we can't immediately see the results of the work we do because it's like planting a seed and it takes time for that seed to grow before you can actually harvest it. And those results come much later. Let me take a step back because we're talking about social work here. What is social work? I haven't really looked, I didn't should have looked up like, is there a definition for social work? And part of the reason why I ask is that when I learned leadership, I learned it as part of my MBA. And I think of like MBA programs and social work programs don't have a whole lot of overlap. But what one of the, before I took those classes, getting a PhD in physics, it was all about numbers and facts and, and learning social and emotional skills or self-awareness wasn't part of what I'd learned. So it, it caught me off guard. I was like, what is this stuff? And it feels like there's a lot more overlap than I would have expected. What, so what is social work? How do you learn it? And what is, what is its overlap with leadership? If, that can, if you can answer that. Yeah, I absolutely can answer that. And I go a couple of different ways. And you know, I can talk a little bit about the field in general and particularly how we look at it at Howard University. Because it's a little bit different the way we kind of see it in terms of there are certain principles within the way we see and do social work. But in general, when you're looking at what social work is, you know, this is planned work that's bring about, you know, community, individual and societal change. The whole idea is that we are developing the programs and the interventions that are really leading toward well-being. And in looking at that, and particularly the way we look at it on the Howard side of things, you know, there's six principles that we go by. We call them affirmation, strength, diversity, vivification, social justice, and inter- internationalization. So one of the big things is saying that anything in social work is trained change. You see a condition and you want to work with an individual or a community to make it better with them guiding it. Part of the affirmation part of it is looking at we're really celebrating the strengths of communities, realizing that, you know, regardless of what's happened to the community, there are folks there every day doing this work and making it better. 
in terms of the strengths. We recognize that folks have those strengths, that there is benefits and our next principle of diversity in terms of taking a, a vivified stance is we are not exclusionary. And when we're looking at that work, diverse people bring about diverse solutions and is moving toward our next principle of social justice, which leads to our last part, which is internationalization, which is looking at the work done globally. But to put it all in a nutshell, as I said before, it is planned change that is led by individuals that are trained, working in cooperation to communities to bring about overall well-being in a nutshell. And, and how is it tied to leadership? Well, the whole point is done well is never me telling the community what they need, what they deserve or what they should get. But it's me working with individuals because when you think about it and I ask students the same question. When was the last time that someone in a position of power or authority ever asked what you really wanted for your life or what for your community? And most people will say, no one's ever done that for me or done that with me. And one of the things we really fundamentally believe is that if you are a good social worker, you're always working your way out of a job because our job is to help change conditions and to bring about better things to community and turn things over to people. We want families to do better. We want communities to do better. We want cities to do better. And whether it's through a program, a policy, and in terms of leadership, you can't do it without leading. And that is also in cooperation with people. So we are teaching you know, social work and what it means to lead, but also what it means to work with other leaders and how to build those that leadership in those communities. So I know I kind of rambled there for a bit, but I hope it kind of at least was somewhere and landed in the ballpark of what you want. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to it. I'm curious if it's, I guess I always thought of it as leading it to government and NGOs, but it sounds like it probably also leads in, I mean, there's business, someone who has an MSW, I guess, could go into government, they could go into NGOs, they could go into community organizing, entrepreneurship. Do they go into business and industry? I, I presume all these things, academia as well. You named all of them. I mean, really, there are six major disciplines. Well, there's individual practice and clinical work. But on the macro side of it, we said there's six major di disciplines. There's the community side of it, which is also organizing. It is community development work and sometimes community economic development work. We also have the administration, which is running nonprofits, running governmental agencies. But in addition to that, many social workers, much like myself, I have my form, my own for-profit organization that I run that does social good. You also have the policy part of things, the programmatic side. We're developing programs for you know individuals, for communities. You also have the academic and research part of it, the evaluations part of it. So we are a very diverse field. If anything, I tell a lot of the students, there is very little that you can do in any other profession that you can't do in social work. I have a number of, you know, former students who are on the Hill doing policy work right now. And I'll tell them, if you want to go to law school, by all means, go for it if you want to. But you can do policy with an MSW. If you want to get your MBA, and again, I encourage students to get it, by all means, get it. But you can learn how to run an organization on the administrative side of social work where you're still going to have to know that a payroll is payroll. You're still going to have to do your strategic planning you're still going to have to do external scans. So all those things you're still going to learn in this field is just that when people tend to think of our field, they tend to think of caseworkers or, you know, people snatching kids away from their families or handing out free food. 
And that's far from what the field does. Now, I'm not saying those aren't important, but I am saying that pretty much anything you want to find across the board, dealing with communities and individuals, there's a social worker doing it right now. It also makes me wonder if there's something similar in social work as there is in sustainability is that I think a lot of people look at sustainability as being politically left and I view it as politically neutral or, it, you know, I view the idea of, of legislation and sustainability, I think of as like legislation in car traffic, like red means red ever in the world. Everyone knows what a stop sign means. We kind of get nervous when we're in a place that doesn't have effective traffic regulation because we might get hit. And it's not like people sit at red lights being like, oh, some government bureaucrat is taking away my freedom to go through this light. We're like, oh, there could be a kid. We don't want to hit anyone. And social work, I think it's viewed as mostly politically left. And I'm, I wonder if, if that's the case in social work, like in sustainability, that it's not politically, that it's more politically neutral. It tends, which I would tend to say we tend to be politically neutral. Now, what people may see, for example, and this is some of the debates we have all the time, you know, in social work, we talk about things such as social justice, economic justice, you name it. But then the question boils down to a debate, well, what is socially just? What is economically just? And that's where you'll see the different, you know, the wide spectrum of beliefs that in terms of folks will believe that, okay, we need some type of way to make sure that people are fed. Well, how do we go about doing that? And that's where you'll see the range of ideas on the spectrum, where some may be on the left, someone may be in the middle, and some may be on the right. It all depends on the individual's perspectives and ideology. And as a field, it varies. If you ask 10 different social workers, there's a chance you can get 10 different answers. But at the end of the day, we know there are certain systems that need to be put in place. Healthcare, education, economic, you know, kind of development, unit environmental justice, looking at issues of disabilities, looking at food policy, looking at, you know, behavioral health policy, mental health, substance use, criminal justice. All of those are areas that are touched by social work. And we vary on the spectrum in terms of ideologically, you know, what is the best approach to make it happen. But we do know, much like you said, that Things need to happen. It's just a matter of how we go about doing them. I'm picturing all this work that takes years and years from when the seed is planted to when you see the results in areas that are of critical importance of health and education. It sounds like it must be grueling and deeply rewarding, but you got you to know how to find the reward for yourself because it's probably, if you look for it in the external stuff, it's not going to be it's so easy to see. I would tell anybody is I don't find it grueling. I mean, one of the things I told you about when my mother sat where we I had the conversation with my mother about school. Well, that when I decided to change to go from pre-med to social, we had another conversation. And, you know, she asked me at the end of that exhausting conversation, probably more so more for her than me. Is this I'm not sure this is what I want to do. 32 years later, I can still say I am absolutely in love with this field and this work. It's not so much grueling as it is every day I have the opportunity to find a better way of helping people and working with people to help themselves as well. That is thrilling more than it is grueling. 
Now, it can take time to get there, but the work itself, where else, like I said, again, do I, you know, where else, being a kid from Detroit, do I go to Browning, Browning, Montana to work with the Blackfeet Nation in terms of issues that they were dealing in terms of TANF? But also, I started seeing other issues that I saw there in terms of, because at that point in time, the Violence Against Women Act, you know, nationally before it was reauthorized, there were many parts in that overall legislation that left indigenous women vulnerable to the point where the young girls, you know, formed their own boxing club to protect themselves because of an individual from, you know, outside of the reservation, came on the reservation and committed a crime. They didn't have authority to try that individual in a tribal court. Well, now I'm seeing, again, young girls that form a boxing club just to protect themselves from sexual violence. Now, eventually, with the next reauthorization, the Violence Against Women's Act got improved, and a lot of those improvements that were necessary were placed there. But seeing that there was a better way than these young girls thinking they have to form a boxing club to fight people off because no one else is... Of course, the tribal members wanted to protect them, but they didn't have the authority legislatively, you know, policy-wise to do much more than go to Montana and say, do something about this. Well, now they do have a better protections in place. And that is exciting for them to see that. And that's something they also fought for. But saying until something happens, we need to do this to protect ourselves. But now to see that protection in place. You know, that's just one example. When I saw healthcare, you know, going to, I had a, a young father I mean, this I'm 6'3", 220. He was bigger than me. Uh-huh. And he bear hugs me in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, picks me up in the air crying because now he can put his young daughter on his health insurance. Those are the kind of things I live for. And I don't mind working with folks from diverse ideologies and, you know, backgrounds and political beliefs as long as we can have the conversation. But the biggest thing I tell folks, and particularly even the folks that are saying I can't do anything, we need you at the table. The one thing in policy that I make sure all of my students know, and anyone that works in policy, is policy, you're either at the table or you're on the table, and all you can ever decide is which one you're going to be. And we need more people at the table making these decisions or informing decision makers, even if you're not a policy person yourself. Go testify, written testimony. Make sure that people understand your experiences because, again, some areas we could argue are potentially malicious and folks may have malicious intent. But I found kind of what you said with that neutral part is if I've never had to think about growing up in a rural place and what that looks like, and I'm from Detroit, then I don't tend to think about rural issues, even though for a person that's in you know western part of Kentucky. That's what they think about every single day. And if that person is not at the table, then their viewpoint is not at the table, and a decision is going to be made anyway. And those are the kind of things we're talking about. But long does it take a while at times? Absolutely, grueling. I live for it <laughs> because I see what it can do. Oh, man, it reminds me of uh, I had a guy on the podcast who helped make. This one over a mile long avenue in Brooklyn and uh, Queens into a, a car free area, and I said, "Oh, it's so great that like everyone seems to love it." Because I was at at a block party where everyone there loved it. And he goes, "Oh no, there's people who hate it." And he turns to me, he goes, "And it, it, I forget how he put it. He's like, 
they write me emails that are really nasty. And he turns and he goes, I love it. <laughs> and so I want to ask direct, uh, ask more about what you're saying about these rewards, because I'm also, I'm in a place where things go slow and I, and I really love what I'm doing. But I want another thing that it sounds like you love teaching. So I wonder if you could share about teaching at Howard, because that's, I mean, Evelyn seems to be getting a lot out of the program, a lot of, about a lot from your courses. What's the balance for you between teaching and social work? Because it feels like there's probably a lot of overlap. Yeah. I mean, the teaching part of it is I know that there's a next generation of social workers that are going to have, they're going to benefit from all of the training I've had as well as the experiences. And now what I get to do is help just impart some of the wisdom I've been able to obtain over the years, but teaching them how to do the work, but more importantly, the way to go about doing it. And I would say if anything else, probably the most important thing is students come there with a pretty good idea of what they want to do, whether they want to address maternal health, if they want to look at child welfare, if they want to look at the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system, you name it, environmental justice, you know, aging issues, they come in there with a pretty good idea of what they want to do. What they don't know is how to go about doing it and the opportunities they're available to do that work. What I love doing um, is to say we equip them with all the skills, the tools, the training and techniques that we can. We make sure there's certain values in terms of those seven, you know, six principles that I talked about. We make sure that when they are in an agency-based education setting, they also learn practically before we, you know, set them loose on the world. But after that, it's, I know that at some point in time, and I say this jokingly, but I'm serious to the students, somewhere down the road, there is a beach and a fruity beverage in my future. And <laughs> I want to be able to do that knowing that all the work, this work is in good hands. And that the people who are doing this work in the trenches, that are in these communities, that are in these legislative bodies, that are in these organizations, know that they're going to have colleagues that are skilled, prepared, and have a absolute love for this work. That's the other part. I want to make them fall in love with this work because it's hard to work hard for people if you don't love the work. And I want them to love the work and the people that they serve. And that's the big thing, understanding they are in positions of service and make sure they're clear about that. Well, Evelyn certainly does have a lot of passion. Has she described to you what we do? Yes, but I, I mean, she. when I say that she is fired up, or there's one student that as much as I will, hand, she will say, have you read this article? Have you looked at this? Here's what we're doing. Take a look at you know this work right here. Let me tell you more about this podcast. Let me tell you more about this you know, work kind of center we're, we're putting in place. She is fired up. And the biggest thing was her learning how systems work so she could be more effective in it. So I'm thrilled when she, when she's told me some of the work you do, and I'm always, Hey, tell me more, but I'm thrilled that she's doing this work, but I'm also that she trolls Howard to entrust, you know, her training and education to us. So are you ready for, to jump in and get and experience it through the Spodic method of what we're like the core of our, what often transforms people? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, is the environment something that matter? Or by the way, and while I do this, a lot of people 
sort of they answer and they're, they're sort of participating in it and in a meta level observing what's going on, which I welcome if you do because I'm I'm curious your perspective based on all of your experience of this way of engaging people. So, is the environment something that matters to you enough that in some way you've acted on it? Absolutely. It's when I say that again, I talk about social determinants. The environment now that is something we are beginning to train social workers on because of the impact we know it has on well-being, on health, on mental health. So absolutely. We're just beginning as a field to really move in that direction. But absolutely. When you think about the environment or when you think about nature, you know, different people grew up in different environments and different situations, you know, some by the beach, some in the mountains, some in cities. When you picture nature, what do you think, like, what do you picture? And, and especially if you were in nature, maybe for, were there any formative experiences that you have that you think of like, ah, oh, that's a quintessential moment of nature? Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Michigan. And, you know, in Michigan, we have the Great Lakes. You know, we have the forest and you ha we have places like Mackinac Island in the Upper Peninsula. And even in D.C., we have there are programs that give youth a chance to experience nature and the calm of nature and the serenity of nature, but also to see the power of nature. And that is something that needs to be cared for as well. There's an individual, his name is Andy Nichols, and he has this program where, you know, he is taking youth hiking and seeing, you know, just what experience in this. If you've grown up and you've never seen it, and I've had, you know, a number of kids. I was one of those kids. I grew up in Detroit and I grew up on the east side of Detroit. I didn't even go really go to the west side of Detroit until I was in my teens, much less other places. But when I got exposed to them. Right now, I have had I have a lifelong love of the water, and that became I remember the first time I saw the ocean, and I really truly understood the majesty and the power and the history, you know, of what that meant. Even growing up in the, in the Great Lakes State, I had never seen the ocean until I was much older. And for a number of young folks, when I say that there is a change that happens in them when they have a chance to connect. And that's not even talking about the programs. We understand the healing where folks that have had, you know, work done, surgery, particularly, you know, brain work. There is hospitals where the, the room will spin and a person can now be in a serenic view. We know that there are medical campuses where now we're they're building in those walkable, you know, walkable spaces and green spaces and the impact it has. So absolutely. So you talked about your personal experiences, and you mentioned a, a, several. There was Mackinac Island, which I believe I've heard of before. You talked about forests, the Great Lakes. Then you also talked about the first time you saw the ocean. I wondered, do any of these, are there any particular moments with any of those things that, that pop up that stand out as formative? Yeah, definitely. I can still remember the first time I saw the ocean. I was 21. I was 21. was the first time I saw the ocean. And I just sat there and listened to it. And I thought about, you know, what it meant historically as an African-American. Folks coming here both by choice and not by choice, but also just the serenity and the beauty of it. And how something that is that calm 
is also that powerful. And I've never forgotten that day. And it's it still sticks with me in terms of you realize that, okay, a ripple that may have happened this will that ripple eventually get to me on this other side of the ocean? Just I mean, it's it's small things like that, but I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that moment. And I'll never forget the other part was just going to some of those lakes in Michigan, what it meant to get away from the city and just relax. I wasn't, you know, outside of the mosquitoes, there was nothing else I was really worried about out there, but a chance to just to walk, to hear, you know, I don't hear cars and everything else going on. It's just, you hear the sounds of, of the forest and it, it was a beautiful thing. And anytime I really need to kind of, you know, kind of refresh myself. I always find myself near water. You're making me think in an interesting way. I grew up going to the ocean. I grew up in Philadelphia. So going down the shore in Jersey wasn't too far away. And the idea of not seeing the ocean until 21 is like, it's hard for me to imagine. And of course, I'm, I presume you heard of the ocean before and you knew what it was like in principle. But it sounds like there was... Like I'm, I'm picturing, like it hit you, like not like a ton of bricks, but like a like in a gut. It was like a ton. It was, you know. I remember I heard the ocean before I saw it, and as I was getting closer, it was getting louder. And I was, you know, then eventually I saw the beach, and as I walked on the beach and saw it, and you know, again, I've seen the Great Lakes, and the Great Lakes, you know, kind of same kind of thing. You look out and you can't see the end of it, and. I've, you know, as I thought about it, I was like, I'm looking at this body of water that is larger than anything I've ever seen in my life and all the histories attached to it. It did do something. And when I say again, there's programs in D.C. right now. There was a program that I think it was called, used to be called Starlight. And they would take kids to camp. And a lot of times, folks, those kids, they don't want to go out in the woods. They loved it. And when I say not only did they love it, it was a chance for them to kind of just be kids and be a part with nature. And, and when I said they would open up and talk and share it. And like you said, you couldn't imagine what it's like being, you know, never being around the ocean. For me, it was. So this is what everyone's been talking about. And I had no idea. And oh, my God. <laughs> it was, can you take us there? And what were the. What were the sensory experiences you got? Like, what, what did you, what did you see? What did it smell like? What did it, could you taste anything? Yeah. Like I said, the first thing before I even saw it, you could hear it. And I remember as I walked closer, I could hear it. And, you know, you, then eventually you hear, you know, the seagulls and the water crashing and the waves. And then I always joke around because you hear things on like Food Network where they say it, tastes like the ocean. I'm like, what the world is that? What? Why would I want something to taste like the ocean? <laughs> but when, but then as you get there, you do see there's a distinct you know, aroma of the ocean where the water and, you know, you just, it's, I'm trying to figure out, that I'm not, I would never do good on Food Network because I'm trying to describe what that aroma was <laughs> like. And I said aroma, not smell, because the aroma is kind of like, it was something pleasant. And it's the air, right? It's like, exactly. yeah. And then as you saw it, like I said again, you saw like the small waves and eventually, you know, the foam on the water 
as it went toward the beach. But as you look further out and you just saw the best way I could put it is you're seeing something that you know is powerful, but it is calm. And then you realize how much power is in that calm. And that's what really resonated with me. Here's something that is ancient as time that has, you know, the history of the world on it. So majestic and calm, but I also understand that that same ocean that's calm right now, there's enough power where it can hold a ship or do something to that ship. And that's just something where it, when it all began to sink into me, it just, I was, like I said, I was forever changed that day to the point now where anytime I want to kind of reconnect, you will always find me by water because it just speaks to my spirit. If you don't mind my sharing something that you remind me of, when I, a lot of times when I'm sitting on the beach and see the waves lapping, it reminds me that waves have been lapping on beaches since long before humans existed. I mean, since long before life existed. And to me, it, it humbles me. It doesn't give me like, a, there's no rational thought that leads me to it. Like, I don't conclude something from that, but it's very meaningful to me. Absolutely. And that's the same kind of experience. I wish you knew why I say it's right there, the history of it, realizing that long after I'm gone, this water, this ocean is still going to be here. And they're, like I said, the history of it. And it's the best way I could put it. The first time I saw it was indescribable as all that. But what you're saying, what you're saying was spot on because that's a very similar kind of perspective reaction. I had to see it for the first time. And it was really, like I said, the majesty and the history of it and what's taking place and whose stories. And even that was kind of joking. There's a bottle with a note going to wash up <laughs> on here to where I mean, but either it's just just the whole majesty of all of it. And it kind of helps you see your place in time. And when you think again, thinking about impact where a ripple that may have started on some other part of the ocean that's finally getting to me now. I mean, I I don't know the science behind it. You know, you, I would say with your background, you probably know that better than me, but I do know that this, it is as old as time. And that still amazes me. Can you put a name to the emotions that you felt or that you feel when you're there? It, you said it right there, it's humbling. And I, like I said, it's humbling for me, you know, mainly because, like I said, again, the power of it. But even, again, as an African-American, depending on where, I had a whole different feeling when I was in Annapolis. And I know that's where, you know, ships, you know, with enslaved, you know, individuals, you know, docked, you know, but the other place where I'm just also like, I know there's history here made, or this is where you go to New York, where a person, you know, came to this country for the first time looking for a better life. That's when I say it is a humbling, but, you know, depending where I'm at, knowing the history of it, sometimes it can be conflicted, but you realize it's not, a, it's the water was more or less the the vehicle where all this stuff took place on, but it's still at times over. I don't want to say over. It's humbling. It's humbling, and it's just awe inspiring at times when you think about what it all represents. 
Yeah. So you came back a lot to humbling. And you, you're, it's not like you're about to say overwhelming, but not. It's not too much, if I'm hearing you, but it, it's humbling, awe-inspiring. And then I heard there's some conflicting because of the history involved of what's happened over oceans. So it sounds like a rich, complex set of, of, of emotions, although the humbling, it sounds like that's your reaction to nature and the awe-inspiring Oh, absolutely. I mean, nature, when I see my place in nature, it's humbling and awe-inspiring both because I want to live harmoniously with nature. I'm not kidding myself to think that I'm ever going to win against nature. (laughs) But when I say when we are, you know, when we take care of, when we're good stewards of it, then the harmony that's there to me is phenomenal. Knowing that, like I said, again, I told you what, when I look at wrapping it all up, the first place I said was going to be at, at a beach by the water. And it is both like, again, rejuvenating and awe-inspiring at the same time, because when I said the power of nature, and I've seen it in many forms, you know, everything from doing disaster work, and I know kind of going all over the place, disaster work, but also enjoying it. I've seen what happens when we don't take care of nature, when we don't respect nature. And I've seen also what can happen in the healing power of it you know, when people are living in harmony with nature. And, you know, one of the experiences I had, you know, again, working with some communities in Africa, I realized there are communities where, you know, growing up in Detroit, the joke always was, well, you know, that's too much. You know, I'm not getting any more water than I can drink. Well, then I've seen whole communities where they lived, you know, everything was based on the water and I had not known that before. And, you know, folks are telling me, no, this is this is our homes. We are a water people. And I was like, since when? And I'm like, since forever. <laughs> and that goes back to understanding it. And yeah, it is. The two words you always gonna hear me say is humbling and awe-inspiring because the humbling part is you kind of see our place in things and awe-inspiring because you looked at the beauty but also the power of nature. Those two things will I'll, will always pop at the forefront of my mind. Well, I'm going to see if I can activate this a bit. When I invite you to think of something that you could do based on these emotions, to, to manifest these emotions in your life, which could be humbling to find, to create or find something, to feel that awe, doing something that, and by the way, I'm not saying something to fix the world. A lot of people here are like, oh, what's something you can do to help nature? That's, I'm not going to stop you from doing those things, but I'm inviting you to think of something you could do to create the emotions that you feel when you're at the beach in some other part of your life with three constraints if you're up for doing it. One is something you're not already doing, the next is something that you do yourself. So it's not getting someone else to do it or, you know, I get a lot of leaders on and they're like, oh, I'll get a team to do X. No, it's something you do yourself because that's how we learn. And something that has a physical component so that you're not just passively walking through, walking along the beach or reading a book or watching a documentary, but it's to create in yourself these feelings in your regular life, something that you weren't already doing. And if you're game to do it, and an obligation, but if you're game to do it, then to come back a second time and share how it went. Now, a lot of people, 
it takes usually, some people actually right away are like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X for a while. This, I'll, I'll do it. But usually it takes a little bit of back and forth to come up with something. But want to give it a shot? I'm down for it. And actually, I think I know one of the, the places I want to start. Oh, yeah? What, what do you have in mind? Well, one of the things I just found about recently about the D.C. area, there was an article, and I'm trying to remember where I saw this article. But in the D.C. area, there's a number of trails and wooded areas. I live in an area where there's a number of trails and wooded areas in D.C. proper. Uh And they're saying that because of non-native plants and other factors, that the younger trees are dying out. And as the older ones begin to diminish, the younger ones are not replaced. They have folks that go in there. They are removing some of the roots and things that are non-native and invasive toward those trees, you know, remove them, give them a better chance to live. Things like that, where they're really trying to work to extend the life of these forests in these wooded areas in the D.C. area. And they were saying how they, you know, even in some of the wars that live in right now, or close to me, in Ward 8, where, you know, there's groups that need all types of help to do that. And now, the, you know, listen to what you're saying I think it's, instead of just reading about it, like I said, you can read about it or you can be about it. And I think it's time for me to be about it. Now, just to make sure, it feels like you're doing something to help the world, which is I love. But I also want to make sure that it's something that would create these feelings. Is it primarily? Is it something mm-hmm. and and that it's in the woods or in parks as opposed to the, the ocean? That change doesn't that. If it's still interacting with nature, that can that works just fine. But I want to make sure you're not just doing it as a sense of obligation, but it's also a sense of is it something that would create? It doesn't have to create all of them, but some of the humbling or the rejuvenating, or would it create harmony? Do, would it achieve those things? Just to make sure. One of the reasons I fell in love with the area that I live in now was because there was a wooded area over there. Because it reminds me a lot of growing up in Michigan. So that brings me back home in a sense. And I want to make sure that that is still there. And even being there, like I said, again, for me, a walk is a much better walk when either particularly if I'm by water or by a place that's serene. So, yeah, that has some meaning for me. Now, I am going to look for something that can allow me to be, you know, more involved with water, because as I said again, since that ocean experience, I have an absolute love for the water that I never knew existed until I went there. So I'm definitely going to look for something to allow me to do more of that as well. I bring me to growing up by Wissickon Creek in Philadelphia, which was this wooded, there was a wooded path. And it's why my parents, when they're still married, why they picked to live where they lived. And only when I went back as an adult did I realize the value it had for me as a child. And yeah, I, if I talk about it, I can I can get carried away, but it feels like that's you're making me think about that. And I love it. And that again, that's kind of where it's coming from. So I love hearing that. Glad to share. So if you do this, how long would it take? For you to, uh, do you know specifically what you do? Are there, do you have to find an organization or can you, do you just go out on your own? Well, I, I know, I know of some organizations because I remember, I, I remember seeing that article and they listed some of them. So for the one immediately in DC, that's just reaching out to the organization because I, I know they're looking for people right now. 
So this is kind of prompt me in that direction. With the water, I'll have to look for that. But the one thing about being a social worker, we will find it. <laughs> so I'll definitely find it. And I'm looking forward to sharing more about what happens afterward. So how long would it take between now and, and if we record a second conversation for if I ask you, how did it go that you can give me a meaningful answer? My birthday is March 24th. I'll have something before that. So after we record, but before we hang up, could we put on the calendar a second conversation? You better believe it. <laughs> now, it sounds like you're looking... Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, I was going to say, it sounds like you're looking forward to it. I'm going to put it in a slightly different way. I walked you through this process, so you wouldn't have acted on it if it weren't for me. Are you doing this for me? I'm doing it for both of us. I mean, one, I'll put it this way. Had you not prompted me, I probably would have just been, I read an article, wow, that's interesting, as opposed to doing something about it. But, you know, as much as you call me a teacher, that's, a, that's the mark of a good teacher, where they can say something that will prompt you to do something that you thought about doing, but didn't necessarily see a vehicle or see a reason that individual act as we kind of talked about before. So yeah, you did your job as a teacher. Does it feel like, for, thank you. And does it feel, do you see what, why Ellen and I are so enthusiastic about what we're doing about this transformation? Like you're, you're a special person, but you're not special in, the, in that it works with virtually everyone, this technique. I mean, you probably picked up on what was going on and how it was working. And it, it, one of the big things is it taps into intrinsic motivation that everybody has. Maybe for them, it's not related to the Great Lakes or seeing the ocean for the first time, but it's something, everyone has something related to nature. And when it gets, when we activate it, when we unleash them, this idea of what I do doesn't matter, they start to see, wait a minute, if I like this, Instead of it's a burden, it's, a, you know, so many people presented as like, we have to sacrifice in order to blah, blah, blah. I don't hear you sacrificing in this. It's, and I've done this with a lot of people. It rarely does it sound, never, I think, do people sound like, oh, I got to sacrifice and go do that thing that like brings me and makes me feel humble and full of awe. And then they start feeling, oh, if I bring this to others, if everyone has this feeling, we're all waiting to be activated to be unleashed like this way. Absolutely. And I would say, Josh, brother, you, you're a social worker at heart. <laughs> I, can see why, I can see why Evelyn hang, hangs out with you and everything like that. You're a social worker at heart because at this core, that same process that you're talking about right now, this is what we do. Where when I told you, I want students to fall in love with this and just set them loose. Well, that's what you're doing. You kind of reminded me of the love I have for this, and now you're setting me loose. So, hey. Like I said, I, I see why she likes hanging out with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deeply flattered by what you're saying and honored as well. Thank you. And the big thing is it it activates us and I love what I'm doing. And it's tough for people to see if I fly around all the time and I hear someone not flying, I think of them not getting what I think of myself getting from flying. But that's not what's in my heart because what I'm doing is it's not necessarily so obvious. I'm not not flying. I am embracing nature all around me. 
And I refuse, right. I, I just don't see the Amazon as more nature than what I have near me. Right. Except that if I think that the way to save the Amazon is to fly there, I, I think it's misguided. I think it's, then I can, it's much easier to let it disappear here. And the more I let it, let it disappear here, I'm willing to let it disappear elsewhere. So it galvanizes and, and it's, it's worth doing, you know, at this stage, it's worth it to me being the top priority. Absolutely. And it's funny you mention all this because as I'm sitting here right now, one of the things I didn't mention is right now, you know, I'm taking a much deserved break. But where am I? I'm in Cambridge, Maryland, looking at the Chesapeake Bay right outside my balcony. So when I when you said this, I was like, yeah, he, 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 he hit me in the feelings with this one. But also in terms of this is just things that I want to do, because like I said, again, when I need to refresh, reconnect, recharge myself. Places like this being by water is where I go. And this is only a, about what? a two hour drive outside of DC, but also a lot of times you'll see me on the Potomac, you know, in front of the Anacostia river, I'll go to Annapolis. So you're correct. As much as, you know, I love seeing other parts of the world and it's a lot of times through the work that through the work that I do, but knowing that it's right here in my backyard and I can just go there to, you know, to it. You're right. Well, I think it might be, a good place to pause because what we're talking about now, after you do the thing, I mean, I've watched a lot of people through this and, you know, there's the anticipation of it, but the doing is, there's no comparison. There's no substitute for actual experience and you're going to experience something when you do it. And I think it'll change the the tenor and um, dimensionality of the conversation. Although I have to mention also, since I talked about these workshops that we do, you know, Evelyn's, she took the workshop last year spring. And then over the summer, she was the TA for the two sections. Okay. And now in January, she's starting, she's going to be, lead, I'm going to be her TA and she's going to be leading the, the new workshop. So she's going to be teaching people how to do this Spodic method. Okay. Now I'm even more excited. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it'll make its way into Howard in some way. Oh, she and I will have a conversation about this because as I mentioned before, you know, for, for one of the few, first few times, we included environmental justice, environment policy as part of our core policy work, particularly in the online programs. So every incoming student is learning about environmental policy, environmental justice from its you know inception to where we are today. So having additional concrete measures to do that only enhances us as an institution. So I'll be talking to her about it because you can't look at people without looking at the environment that they're in and being again from Michigan where we can have the great lakes, but you can also have the Flint water crisis. I mean, it is fundamentally important. We are beginning to understand this better as a profession and we definitely need to partner more with groups and individuals and entities that can really inform our work and uh, help us do a better job. But also we know that connecting people with nature behavioral health, mental health, you know, substance use recovery, it has phenomenal impacts that we are just beginning to understand now. So I'm looking forward to it and I'll definitely be following up with her. Now I have to add something also that a lot of people describe nature as medicine, nature as restorative. 
And to me, that implies that normal is without nature. And so we can add nature. But I think what I'm saying is logically the same, but to me, psychologically, it feels different that nature, spending time in nature and having access to nature, which up until probably living memory was automatic. Everyone could walk to have solitude in nature, whether that was in a forest or at a beach or wherever it was without a helicopter overhead, without honking. And now without it, the lack of it causes problems, not that with it helps solve problems. It's a slight change, but to me, it says we should never let it happen that everyone doesn't have some direct access to nature with nothing more than a walk. And yeah. so it is restorative, but to me, it's it's the absence of it is disease-causing. I'm, I'm being a little... I don't want to. I hope I'm not using technical terms in a, in a wrong way. I'm, I'm talking kind of fast and loose, but I hope people get what I'm what I mean. I agree with you. I believe you're spot on because we, you know, in any work I've done with indigenous communities, nature is just there is no there is a harmony. There's no separation, and I do agree. It kind of goes back to what people are feeling when they are disconnected from it, because you know, growing up where you're surrounded by concrete. And you're surrounded by tall buildings and you don't have that type of access or you may it's there is like you like you said right there, the absence of it is having an impact on people. And I think you phrased it correctly. So I'm even going to correct the way I talk about it. You know, while it can be restorative, the whole part is it's kind of like, well, yeah, if you're thirsty, water is very restorative to you, but you never should have not had it in the first yeah, place. Exactly. Yeah. Same way with this. Let's pick up here next time. Absolutely. In the, unless there's something I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up. I think you've been pretty, you, you've done your work. <laughs> so now it's time for me to do mine. I look forward to the next conversation. All right. Don't hang up. And um, Stephen Broyles, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.